Amen and amen. You can grab your seats. Kiddos, you guys are dismissed. Everyone else, if you will grab your Bibles and go with me to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians 6 is where we're going to land. I'm I'm glad everyone's here. College students, welcome back. Glad you're here. Uh, Our friends from Berea, glad you're here. I love that when churches can worship together, uh, that's an exciting time. Uh, And I'm I'm glad to kick off this year. Um, Last week we had Jared preach his first sermon. And if you were here, you would echo this sentiment, I'm sure, but it was fantastic. Uh, Jared, where's Jared? Good job, man. I just want to publicly praise you. My first sermon was not that. It was awful. Uh, Actually, it was really good because I totally plagiarized. But um, so you killed it. Thank you so much for preaching so faithfully. Um, Now, let me kind of give a caveat. Can you turn me down just a hair? Let me give a caveat of what we're doing this morning because it's going to be a little different. As you guys know, most of the time um, we pick a book of the Bible and preach all the way through it, and that will start next week. So next week we're starting the book of Exodus, uh, and I don't don't know how long that's going to go, honestly. We had a preaching team meeting where we sat down to map out the book of Exodus, and then we got to, I think, chapter we got through the plagues, and we were also tired. We're like, okay, let's take a break. Um, but that we've, we've planned up through, I think, August-ish. Um, but then the debate started, well, we can't start Exodus, right? Like, we've got to have some kind of primer within the book of Genesis to help make Exodus make sense. Uh, now, all the flack I get for being long-winded uh, happened in that room because I, my suggestion was, hey, let's just do two or three weeks in Genesis. Uh, by the time that we left, we were going to spend eight weeks in Genesis. So um, starting next week, we're going to have a primer, uh, eight weeks in Genesis, and then sliding into Exodus in the beginning of March. Sound good? So that's coming next week. This morning, uh, I, I just want to share a little bit from my heart about where we are and what we're doing and, and maybe some things, some, some tensions I see for us and, and some hopes for us within this next season. Uh, and it really goes back to last year. So last year, this time, we challenged everyone uh, to read the Bible chronologically in a year. Right, So start to finish, cover to cover, chronological in a year. Now, I'm not going to make you raise your hand if you attempted to start and didn't finish. I know that's me. That's a lot of us. If you're doing it on your phone, just hit the three buttons at the top, catch me up, keep going. Even if you finish the Bible with two years, that's still incredible. But I want to show honor where honors do. Who started the Bible chronologically with us last year and finished within the calendar year? You started and finished your reading plan last year. Raise your hand for me. Two people. All right. Now, I saw Stephen. He doesn't count. Who was the other person? I saw it. Oh, Carol. I love it. I love it. Good. No, be proud, Carol. That's incredible. Thank you guys so much. So, like I said, keep going. If you didn't finish like me, keep going. Keep reading. It's going to be awesome. Uh, but this year, th- there's just been this passage, really over the last six months, this, this phrase that we're going to see in Ephesians 6 has been stirring in me, and so we kind of had this off vision Sunday before we dived into Genesis and Exodus, and, and so that's where I want to land. So Ephesians 6, all this hopefully will make sense for us in a second. Ephesians 6, 10 through 18 uh, is where we're going to read and study, but we're really focusing on verse 12. That's kind of the focal point of this text, but Ephesians 6, we'll read 10 through 18, and then... I'll pray for us. Ephesians 6, 10 through 18. Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. 
For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having on the breastplate of righteousness and the shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up your shield of faith with which you can extinguish all flames, flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. So join me in prayer. Father, would you uh, bless this time as we study your scriptures? Father, would you illuminate it to our hearts? Um, God, would you convict us and where we need to go and what we need to do out of this sermon? Father, because you're giving clear instructions in your text. And we're desperate to know you more. We're desperate to be obedient to you and what you have for our lives. So, Father, would we uh, reorient everything around your truth, your gospel, your grace for us this morning? It's your name that we pray. Amen. Now, some quick context just for the book of Ephesians. And if you want to see this for your own eyes, you can go back. Acts chapter 19 is where we really see the church in Ephesus kind of take off, right? So Paul is there as he plants all these churches. And we see the genesis of this uh, in the book of Acts. But Paul's there, and he starts this public proclamation of the gospel. He's preaching for three months, the scriptures would tell us. He's boldly proclaiming. And at the end of three months, he's got about 12 faithful disciples. So he says, okay, I'm going to call an audible here. I'm going to take these 12, and I'm going to pull them aside. I'm going to work on discipling these 12, which is a really good method for the church and discipleship. And I'm going to continue to preach and teach in the public square, but I'm really going to focus all my time and energy on these disciples. And we see in Acts 19.10 that from that labor of Paul for two years and three months, that here's what happens. All the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So there's this massive revival happening within Ephesus. The gospel is just going forward. And, and Ephesus is, is really just a wicked place. So we can get into all of Ephesus later. Maybe we'll preach through that uh, at some point. But, but the interesting thing takes place is, is all these corrupt, idolatrous worshipers start saying, okay, well then maybe I can profit all of this, which in Acts 19 is one of my favorite stories, is the seven sons of Sceva, right? So, so they see Paul casting out all these demons and doing these incredible things, so they go, man, I, I can do that. So they approach this demon-possessed man, say, hey, listen, uh, Paul's Jesus, Paul's God says, you, you've got to go. And the demons speak back, right? If y'all, are y'all familiar with this story? And they say, God we know, Paul we've heard of, but who are you? And then they destroy the guy, right? So scripture literally says that these seven sons leave pantless, right? Like they leave naked. They got the clothes beat off of them. That's how much they were destroyed. And everything starts to fall apart. All these idolatrous worshipers go, man, something is actually happening here. That All these people are coming to Christ. They're being baptized. They're following after him. So much so that we see that all these people that were making these false gods, making these false idols, are really frustrated because their business is over. That so many people were following after Jesus now that their business is done and this revival breaks out at the end of Acts 19. And we'll see this, Acts 19, 18. 
Also, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices, and a number of those who had practiced magic and arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found them to be 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. So a lot of these people that are coming to Christ in this church of Ephesus that Paul's writing to in Ephesians came from witchcraft. They came from uh, idolatrous worship. They came from evil practices, and that's going to matter a lot, as we'll see Paul writing to them in a second. But the church in Ephesians is really unique because we see the Genesis, but we also get to see them falling apart. So in Revelation 2, we see uh, this prophet, this message from God to John, to the church in Ephesus, and he's calling them out for one thing. So let me read, if you want to flip, Revelation 2. I'm going to pick it up in verse 2. Because I think it's important for us to see just, again, the beginning and the end of the church in Ephesus. And here's what Revelation 2.2 says. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil. But I've tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. So, so far, man, the church in Ephesus is killing it, right? They had a miraculous beginning. So far, this is going great for them. But then it turns in verse 4. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember, therefore, where you have fallen. Repent and do the works as you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Now, history would tell us that the church's Ephesus is no longer standing. So at some point, God did what he threatened to do, which is to remove the lampstand. So here we have this church with this miraculous beginning, right? I mean, you have this massive revival coming to take place. Paul preaching, people bringing all their books, stuff they could have sold, laying them before the feet, setting them on fire, committing all of their lives to Christ. And we see this work continue and continue all the way to Revelation, that they're working incredibly hard. But Paul's, or John's saying, listen, through God, you've forgotten why you do what you do. Yes, you're working hard. Yes, you're doing the right thing. But the love that you had for me at first is gone. Spurgeon would put it this way, a church has no reason for being a church when she has no love within her heart or when that love grows cold. Lose love, lose love all. So you start to read this and we go, okay, what, what is happening? If we can do uh, just kind of a breakdown, what, what led to from this church that had this incredible potential in Acts 19 to the church that is dead in Revelation 2, what happened? And what is God trying to speak to us through his scriptures so that this doesn't happen to us? Because when I read that first part of Revelation, I'll be honest, that's us. I mean, there's so many things as a pastor and as an elder here I can praise you for and commend you for. And the way that you work and the way that you love and the things that you do is, is phenomenal. I mean, we were talking the other night. You are an incredibly easy congregation to pastor. You love my family well. You love my wife well. You support the elders well. But is there something we can learn from this? Well, I, th- I think there is. And from Ephesians 6, Paul is already kind of understanding and seeing and understanding this drift that's taking place. And and so what I want us to see out of the text this morning is simply this. We must know what the temptation is. We must know what the tempter is. And we must know the solution. 
We must know the solution. So if you're still in Ephesians 6, great, because that's where I want you to be. Look with me at verse 10. All of that was just kind of a way to set up where we are. Ephesians 6, we're going to look at verse 10. Finally, so the end of Paul's letter, finally, here's this conclusion. Finally, be strong in the Lord and of his might. And from this, he goes on to give really good counsel, which we'll look at in a second. Uh, but there's two things that we have to understand. There's two things that we have to see in this idea. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his might. Because here's the two lies that we have believed, right? That life is going to be easy. I mean, if there's one thing that I counsel over and over and over again, it's this. And, and people express it in a bunch of different ways, but here's what it always comes down to. Life isn't supposed to be this way. Life is not supposed to be this way. And I just want to go, and I have to tell this, where, where do you get that? Like, where do we see that in the scriptures, that life is supposed to be easy and it's glorious and glamorous and nothing bad happens? Because I think Jesus was really clear, John 16, 33. In this world, you will have trouble. You will have tribulation. It's going to be tough. So we see this and we go, finally, be strong in the Lord. Yeah, I'm, I'm good. Because if life is easy, I don't have, I don't have to be strong. Everything's going to be just fine. So that's the first lie. And the second lie that we believe is even when hard times come, we in our own strength can handle it because we're tough and we're Americans, right? And we're built different. We can handle this. We've got this in us. We don't need God. One, hard times are not going to come. And two, when they do, come at me, bro, look at me. I crossfit. Not really. I haven't done it in like six weeks. Okay, that's a lie. It's like three months uh, or six months. It's been a really long time, all right? Don't judge me. Thanksgiving was great, and then the three months before Thanksgiving were even better. So, but, but we think we can handle it. We, we think we're built different into a way that, that we don't really need. So we read Ephesians 6.10, finally be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. And that's a really cute idea and concept, but none of us live our lives that way. All that we do, most often or not, is finally be strong in the Lord and the strength of your might. You've got it. You're in control. You have what it takes. And God, help us. If you listen to a lot of modern preaching today, that's what's being expressed. There's enough in you. There's enough good deeds. There's enough good works. You can do it. That's a, that's a destruction happening. I mean, that is going to end badly for you. If you think we have what it takes, so if we don't sit down, meditate, Ephesians 6.10, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might, we are going to fail. Because we're trying to do this on our own. We're trying to earn God's love. We're trying to carry out, thanks God for saving me. I can sustain myself. I can do what it takes. And this, this thought pattern that comes in, though, this is where I really want to land. Why do we think that way? Why do we believe that way? Why do we behave that way? So, so the temptation here is to think, I've got what it takes. Don't let anyone see me sweat. Don't, I'm, I'm going to go to family group, but I'm not actually going to talk about my life. I'm going to spend some time with guys or spend some time with girls, but I'm not actually going to talk about my struggles and my sins because I've got it. By the time I bring it up, I would have already fixed it anyway, so it's not even worth bringing it up right now. Anyone else have that thought? Liars. Thanks, Seth. The rest of you, that's your sin to confess today. Lying. <laughs> Leaving your pastor high and dry. But, but that's, that's where we are, right? So we have to understand this is the temptation. What is the temptation? Before we get to the tempter, what is the temptation to do life on our own? 
to leave the God that we love and figure it out by ourselves. And, and this is nothing new. We can go all the way back to Genesis. Did God really say, did, did he really say that? I mean, that's the whole point of it, right? That's the whole temptation in us. Well, God didn't actually say, I know better than him. I can eat the apple. I can eat the fruit. God might have said that, but, but if God knew my situation, if he knew my circumstance, he would understand why I'm doing it this way. I know God says, don't worry, but if he knew what I was going through, he'd go, yes, son, you need to worry. I know God says, don't do this, but if he, did God really say, so the temptation for us is to leave the God that we love, and the way that we do that is to acknowledge that we know more than he does, that we live our lives based on what we think is best, not what he says is best. That is the temptation that we're all struggling with, that we all work through. I've quoted this before, but my favorite hymn, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. That's us. And it's not something that's going to be fixed. It's not something that's going to be miraculously solved. That's going to be the rest of our lives. That's the message of sanctification. Our entire life is going to be prone to, prone to, prone to, not just wonder, but prone to, Ephesians 6.10, in the strength of your might. You're the point. You're the strength. You can do this. This is what the tempter sells us. And this is what Paul's making the point. So look with me, Ephesians 6, verse 12. Because if we understand the temptation, then we clearly see who's tempting us. And this is where it happens. Ephesians 6, we're going to pick it up in verse 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil and the heavenly places. Here's what this is saying. And this has to be a fundamental shift for This is the passage that just over and over and over again for the last six months, it keeps popping in my head. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. We don't wage war against flesh and blood. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. This is the passage. This is the only reason I'm preaching this is this one phrase. Because we must know who the tempter is. We must know where the temptation is coming from. It is not flesh and blood. We do not fight against flesh and blood. It means that our enemies are not human, but demonic. That there's something happening here. And we went to Revelation 12 within Advent to see uh, the inside out, the opposite of what's taking place. We have the nativity scene, and we have Mary and Joseph and the animals and the star scene. But we see in Revelation 12 is there's a dragon waiting to devour this baby. That's what's taking place. That there's more at stake here, and there's more going on here than any of us can any comprehend. And we see this, that our war is not against flesh and blood, but it's against the principalities, against the devil or Satan. Here's just a few ways the scripture would define him. Satan in John 12 is the prince of this world. In Ephesians 2, the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. 2 Corinthians 4 is the God of this age. Satan is the God of this age. And then Revelation 12, we see the accuser of believers. This is our true enemy. And please hear me. He's powerful. He's powerful. He's deceptive. He's evil and he's shrewd. And we have overlooked this for far too long. We have missed this for far too long. That the reason, the motivation for us to be tempted to do life on our own isn't just human nature. 
It is this trick all the way from Genesis. It's the same way that they tempted Adam and Eve. It's the same way he's tempting us. God didn't really say that. Just do what you think is best. Do it in your might. Do it in your strength. And we go, okay, sounds good. And it doesn't work out, and we go, God, why don't you love me? Because we're following the God of this world, not the God of the universe. That's what's taking place in us. That's what's working out in us. All Satan wants to do is destroy our relationship between us and God. That's all he wants to do. So everything he's doing, but, but we have to see, I mean, gosh, let me go back to Genesis. How subtle and low-key and non-threatening was that interchange? I mean, he just comes up, hey, God didn't really say that. You don't really have to do that. So in our minds, and maybe, maybe I'm just wrong on this, but in our minds, I think of Satan tempting us as this massive red flag, like, oh, that's Satan. I probably shouldn't do that. But more often than not, it's this little subtle thought that pops into my mind. Well, you, just do what you think's best. You got this. Yeah, you should be right. You, you should be upset because they shouldn't treat you that way. They would never have treated Jesus that way. Why would they treat you that way? Oh, they killed him. Spoiler alert. So yeah, they're going to treat you that way. So, so we have this subtle lie that starts going into our heads. But when we see Satan as our true enemy, not flesh and blood, we really start to understand this temptation. Here's what I mean. If you disagree with this analogy, you can blame Thomas because I wasn't going to say this. Thomas Odom, Thomas, raise your hand real quick. It's Thomas's fault. His fault. Because I was sitting in the coffee shop Friday going, I don't know that I can use this. He goes, use it. So this is Thomas' fault. So uh, my wife and I drove to Kentucky this week just for a quick 24-hour campus visit. On our way back, we're listening to this podcast uh, with a guy named Tristan Harris. Do you all know who Tristan Harris is? He's the one that, that produced and, and came up with the, the Netflix documentary, uh, Social Dilemma. If you haven't watched that, I highly encourage you to go watch Social Dilemma. Uh, because who Tristan Harris is, or Tristan, however you say it, uh, he, was, he used to work for Google. He understands all the algorithms and what's at stake within social media. So he's one of the few guys from the inside going, hey, social media is extremely dangerous. Don't get on it. Don't use it. Don't let your kids use it. It's, it's incredibly dangerous. And here's one of the things that he brought out that I had no clue. He referenced a 2019 study done by MIT, right? So this isn't done by just your average guy. It's done by MIT technology that the 19, check this out, 19 out of 20 Facebook pages, American Christianity. So right, the top 19 out of 20 American Christian Facebook pages were not actually ran by American Christians, Right? They were ran by these troll farms across the world. So, so you get on there and you, we follow these American Christian uh, Facebook groups and really what we're being infiltrated is, is by these trolls across the world. So we're being encouraged by, we're having scripture taught to us, not by fellow believers, but by people trying to manipulate us and get into our heads. And he goes on to say, and this is what really just creeps me out, that, I mean, just think about it, in your own world, Social media, five years ago, everyone was getting on and posting this and posting that. But today, they found that social media posts go down, but group interaction, what happens within groups and commenting back and forth, that's where the money is. And if you're anything like me, that's why I get onto social media, to go on to Say What You Want Delonica and just watch people fight. I get my popcorn. I mean, that's, that's what we want, right? I went to a hockey game last night for the sole purpose of watching a fight. The whole media idea understands this, that we're all drawn into, gravitated into conflict. I mean, even, okay, let me just, ABC posted last night that three people died from rabies from bats. 
I mean, this is just this like fear-mongering, let's freak out, like that hasn't been happening for the last hundreds of years. Yes, bats and rabies, that's not, anyways, I digress. That's not news, that's my whole point. But if they can get us excited and get us worried and get us fearful, then they know they have us. So here's what's happening. Facebook and other groups are making artificial intelligent robots to argue back and forth so that we go onto social media, we watch this interaction, we watch these debates, we even join in on the debates thinking that we might win this argument. But what we don't realize is who we're fighting is a robot, that we have fought, we've entered into a fight that we're never going to win. Now, why do I say this? We were crossing over the Kentucky-Tennessee line and it hit me. That is what we're doing, church. We are so preoccupied by fighting flesh and blood that we're arguing against something that's never going to lose because we're fighting the wrong battle. We're going after the wrong enemy. Scripture tells us it's not COVID, it's not Fauci, it's not presidents, it's not rulers, it's not any of this. It's Satan that's trying to destroy us. But we sit around and we fight about COVID and we fight about this and we fight about that and we're arguing against flesh and blood and all the while, please hear me, we're dying. We are losing because we're fighting the wrong enemy. And we think we're advancing, but what we're really doing is arguing against robots. We're arguing against something that's never going to win. It's never going to fix it. That's where we are because our battle is not against flesh and blood. It's against Satan, against the prince of, of darkness. And that, that's where we are. And if we don't wake up to the reality of this, then the church here, the church universal, is going to go like the church in Ephesus. We're going to do a bunch of really good things, but at the end of the day, we're going to lose because we're fighting in our strength and our power, not out of God's. This is us. First Peter 5.8 would put it very clearly. Be sober-minded and be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. So we're sober-minded and we're watchful over us. I'm going to keep people at a distance, but all the while, I just give Satan a free pass. You do what you want. Because my inclination is it's people that I've got to watch out for. Scripture's telling us, no, 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 it's way deeper than that. So if we understand the temptation is to do this on our own, to leave the God that we love, and we understand the tempter, which is Satan himself, what then do we do? Great question. Paul gives us the solution at the end of chapter 6. Look at me, Ephesians 6, 13. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Now, I wish we could spend a lot of time there, but I get made fun of for going long, so let's skip down to verse 18. Praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. So what is our offense? What then do we do if we're not fighting flesh and blood, if we're fighting an enemy that we cannot see, can we fight with our knuckles? Can we fight with our efforts? Can we fight with our knowledge? Can we fight a spiritual body, or excuse me, a spiritual battle with physical bodies? No. We fight spiritual with spiritual. So Paul is telling us, pray. Pray at all times. Pray without ceasing. 
How are we going to fight the prince of disobedience? How are we going to fight Satan himself? It's not by your strength, your might. It's by the power of prayer. It's our job to stand aside and let God fight the battle for us. Let me read 2 Timothy 4, 17-18. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. It's the Lord that rescues. It's the Lord that does. It's his strength. If we go back to Ephesians 6, 10, this is where it all makes sense. To be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might because he is the only one that can do it. He is the only one that can fulfill it. So for us, it does two things. Take the weight off. That this is not up to you. Men, trying to lead your family the best that you can is ultimately not up to you. Trying to withstand temptation, church, is not ultimately up to you. You cannot do this through white-knuckle effort. It's only through prayer and supplication, pleading with the Lord to do what only he can do. This is what it is. So let me just real quick, go back to 1 Samuel 17. I know we're all over the place. 1 Samuel 17, and I'll read it if you don't want to flip, but you can flip. 1 Samuel 17, because this is just, when you put these lenses on, that we're not fighting against flesh and blood, we're not fighting against each other, we're not fighting man to man. When we put these lenses on, we see Ephesians 6, 12, that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil. When we understand that, we see these lenses, we will see this everywhere. Now, if you're anything like me, we've grown up in church, we've heard David and Goliath over and over and over and over again. But let's read this story one more time with these lenses on and see what we see. 1 Samuel 17, we're going to pick it up in verse 41. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David. The Philistine is Goliath. With his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. That's what they called me in high school. Verse 43. And the Philistine said to David, am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of armies of Israel, whom you have defiled. Who is David letting fight for him? It's not his own strength. It's not his own power. It's not his own grit. It's not his own handsomeness. Is that a word? He's very clear going, say what you want to, because my God's got this done. Because I'm, I'm, not, I'm not fighting within flesh and blood. I know the truth of what's happening here. Let's keep reading verse 46. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. We should put that on some coffee cups. But, but seriously, did you catch the order of that? This day, the Lord will deliver you into my hand. Here's what's going to happen first. The Lord's going to do my fighting for me. And then I get to come in and do the fun part. Your kappa is going to be detated. That's what's going to happen to Goliath. 
And I will give you the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all may know that there is a God in Israel. Oh, we could preach this for a long time. God is for God's glory. And if we just get out of the way and serve him and let him do what he's going to do, we'll be just fine. Because he loves us and he cares for us and his glory and name and renown is not going to be destroyed. Verse 47. And that this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with a sword and a spear. For the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hand. For the battle is the Lord's. It's not flesh and blood. It is the Lord's battle. So church, what is our response? If it's not our strength, our might, our power, our grit... It's the Lord and his battle. What is our response? What's with all prayer and supplication making our request known to God? It's going, God, you're the only one that can do this, so I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray hard, and then I'm going to keep praying, and then I'm going to keep praying. And we could spend a long time just looking at the life of Jesus, because his life was marked by this. But I just want to, if you will go with me, just two quick passages in Luke. Luke 5 and Luke 11. Because this is something that Jesus in his flesh fully knew and fully understood. Luke 5 and Luke 11. Luke 5, 16, but he, Jesus, would withdraw to desolate places and pray. Other translations would say he would often withdraw. So Jesus withdrew. Jesus got away and spent time in prayer because he understood. He knew what was going on. And Luke 11, we see, and I love the heart of this, Luke 11, 1. Now, Jesus is praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said, Lord, teach us to pray. And so he teaches us the Lord's Prayer. He goes through parables. And at the end, I would encourage you to read this on your own. There's, there's a reason I'm skipping over this. I'll tell you in a second. But if you go to verse 13, if you then who are evil... Know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? God wants to. He desires to answer the prayers. And we understand what's at stake here and what's going on. Our only true response is this. Now, now here's why I skipped over a lot of this. Because most of the times when we gather together and you hear a sermon on prayer, here's what you hear. Do this, don't do this, Pray this way, don't pray this way. But my motivation coming out of this, coming out of Ephesians 6.12, was to us to see the reality of what's taking place in the spiritual realm. So not just teach you how to pray, pray, but what is the motivation and what is the danger if we don't? Because we're going to get waxed. We're going to get destroyed. We're going to be the seven sons of Sceva we see in Acts 19. Get the pants beat off of us over and over and over again. Then we're going to shake our fists at the heavens and get mad at God. Then we're going to go try to do things on our own power again. Get destroyed. Get mad at God. And this is this cycle. Please hear me. Am I describing any of your spiritual journeys? Right now, is that your spiritual life? 
You get so mad at God because he left you high and dry, and then you keep doing things on your own power, and then you feel like God has left you high and dry, and we're fighting this crazy cycle over and over again. Instead of realizing that this temptation is not flesh and blood, the enemy is Satan, and he's real. So, so what then do we do? Here, here's the reality. I want our church to be marked by prayer. I want my life to be marked by prayer. I want us to f- be fully aware of the spiritual realities that's taking place around us. Because here, here's where a lot of this has been birthed out of me. If I can just, I'm starting to wrap up, I promise. It might be sub 40, we'll see. When I look at, so, so there's a book that I'm reading called The Patient Ferment of the Early Church. And in this book, he talks about the push and pull of revivals. So most revivals within history have been started with some kind of push first, and then the church pulls them in, right? So, so we can look at 9-11. It's, it's rumored to say that there's more people within church in America the Sunday after 9-11. Why? Because there was a push There was an uncomfortable, what is happening? I don't know what's happening in this world. So it pushed people out of their comfort zones, and the church is ready to pull them in. And we see this happen over and over and over again throughout history. This is how revivals get started. There's a massive push, and then the church goes, come here, I can give you some answers. Or the church goes, come here, I I can heal you. When you read about all the plagues that happened throughout history, who was the one that was out there in the streets giving their lives to save people and rescue people? It was the church. So there's a pull of plagues, or a push of the plagues, and then the church pulled them into the gospel. But we look at COVID, and we look at these last couple years of political turmoil that's gone on in our country, and there's been a push, all right, and the church has not pulled them in. We have missed our moment because we're pushing just right back that we are fighting just as much as the world is. And so the, the world is going, then why would I be a part of the church? You react on social media just like I'm reacting to social media. You're talking about politics just as much as I'm talking about politics. You're not giving me any more solutions. You're just sending me Fox News articles. What is happening here in our world when there's been a massive push getting people uncomfortable and the church isn't ready to pull them in is because we're fighting against flesh and blood. We're not seeing the bigger picture of what's happening here. That Satan is losing and we're missing it because we're joining in right with the fight of the people. We're fighting flesh and blood. We're not seeing what's happening here. We've got to pull them in to the good news of the gospel. We're being so tempted to stand in our own strength and be our own God that the craftiness of Satan is the best it's ever been. And we cannot fight this battle in the flesh, but only through prayer. So church, we've got to pray. We've got to slow down. We've got to stop, lest we be the church of Ephesus and Revelation that's doing all the right things, but we're doing this in our own power. We've got to slow down and say, God, you're the only one that can do this. You're the only one that can save us. You're the only one that can sustain us. You're the only one that can grow us. You're the only one that can lead us. So we're going to stop and slow down. And let me be frank. Everyone look at me. I was telling this to somebody Friday. Uh, I heard a pastor say one time, and it's just been true. What you hate about the church, this is coming from a pastor, what you hate about your church is what you hate about yourself. So, so you want me to be honest with you why this is such a big deal, because I've led you poorly over the last eight years in this. And really coming out of 2020, 2021, This is what I've been learning. 
I mean, you don't go through a season of depression and then go into your wife having an accident where you didn't know she was going to walk again and then come out going, man, I can fight my own battles. I mean, there's days I didn't want to get out of bed. There was days that I would just sit there with Bree and play Mencala. Do y'all know that dumb little rock game over and over and over again because that's all that I could do for that day. So you get into that pit of depression. You get into that realities where even if I wanted to fight back, I couldn't. But that was the Lord's grace and his gentleness going, hey, son, you're, you're doing too much. You're, you're fighting too much in your own strength and in your own power. Stop it. Rest. Pray. Let me fight your battles for you. So this last year and a half for me has just been that releasing of a grip, lowered expectations for myself, what I have to do, and just giving it to the Lord. So this isn't some theoretical idea or concept to be preaching. This is a pattern and a, a thing that I've been working out the last year and a half. And I'm not saying I have any moral authority or expertise in any of this, but I'm saying that this life is a lot better than what I was living two years ago. You can ask my wife. You can ask my kids. I'm a better husband and a better Brie. Good? Am I lying? But I don't, I don't want to get like smited, smoting right now. Lightning. Am I? Am I better? Am I better looking? Yeah. So, so we can keep on. We can keep fighting the fight in our flesh. And we can keep getting destroyed and destroyed and destroyed. Or we can stop. And we can pray, and we can trust. So last year, let's read the Bible. Praise God for that. I'm so grateful. And I hope, I hope that, that those like me that didn't finish chronologically in a year, we can finish in two years. That's still a massive win to read cover to cover of your scriptures. But, but what does it look like for us to pray this year? Here's just a couple things. And I, I don't want to be legalistic about this, but here's just a couple challenges to go. Pray daily. And please hear me, I'm not focusing on method and here's how you should pray. And there's intent. I'm going to start putting in the book nook uh, in the next couple of weeks some books on prayer that will help you with that. But I don't want you to get so lost in the how-to, but, but just start. Just pray. And as a son or a daughter talks to their father, just pray daily. Five minutes, two minutes, I don't care. Pray daily. Instead of, and, and maybe this is just me, I do this all the time. Instead of saying, hey, I'll pray for you. Stop in that moment and pray for them. Sounds strange, right? Just do it. Hey, I'm praying for you. Write it out in a text message. Here's what I'm praying. This is me texting. If you text like this, never mind. Do what you do. Stop and pray right there in that moment. Men, pray with your wife and your kids out loud. Now, this is an area I still fail in tremendously because when I get to bed, I don't want to pray. And when I actually go to bed, my wife stays up three or four hours later. And I can make excuse after excuse after excuse. But what would it look like just with the goal of once a week? Okay, I'm going to start once a week. I'm going to pray for my wife and kids out loud. And that works up to a daily rhythm for you and your families. Withdraw monthly to pray. I'm talking an hour or two. I'm not saying it's got to be a whole weekend, but, but have a time monthly where you just withdraw. Maybe it's you go on a hike. Maybe you go fishing. Maybe you go hunting. Something outdoors is what always does it for me, but, but find a time just to withdraw monthly for an hour or two devoted just to prayer, just spending time with your Father in prayer. 
Like I said, next week and the weeks following, I'll have some more resources. But, but let us just pray with the motivation that we cannot do this on our own. We cannot. Remember this. Prayer is the greatest weapon we have at defeating Satan, temptation, and sin. So in a moment, I'm, I'm going to pray for us. And I want us just to commit to this year, understanding the weight and the power of prayer, that we can do nothing on our own. And in a second, we're going to take communion together. If you're a believer in this room, we're going to take communion. And I just want you to spend a few moments praying. You can bring it back to your seats. You can take communion back there. But just spend a few moments in prayer, committing this, understanding the reality that we're not fighting against flesh and blood, that Satan is out to destroy our relationship with God. And if we don't fight through prayer, we're going to lose. So let's just spend a few moments praying over that, and we'll continue in worship. So let me read Paul's instructions for communion, and then I'll, I'll close us out. Here's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread and drinks of the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and of the Lord. So let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For whoever eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment upon himself. So Christians, this is a time for us to remember all that the Lord's done for us. And if, if he would go to the cross for us, He's fighting every battle that we could ever fight, which is sin and death. He, he did that. Let that be a motivation for us to pray more earnestly. And as Scripture would say, we cannot do this in an unworthy manner, which means some of us need to sit and repent of our sins before we go back. This would also mean that those that are not yet believers, uh, this is a time for you just to sit in your seat and hang out for a few minutes, contemplating what you've just heard. But this is a special time for the believers as we get to remember all that Christ has done for us. So, Branch, let this year be a year marked by prayer. Let this year be a year marked not by action or all the great things that we've done, but how many times we've sat and prayed and pleaded with the Lord to do what only he can do. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Now, Father, we first and foremost just need to repent of our own sins. Father, we know that you created everything out of nothing, that you hung the stars in the sky, that that you created the waters and the land and you created us. But Father, somewhere along the way, we've thought that we know better and that we can do things on our own and it's our own strength, it's our own might. And so Father, let this morning be a time of repentance for us. Father, because there's some of us in this room that are exhausted of fighting our own battles, that are so tired trying to be our own strength and our own might. And let this morning just be a morning of freedom for these people as they stop fighting flesh and blood and, and they turn it over to you. Because you are more than a conqueror. You've created everything. There's nothing you cannot do. And there's others in the room that maybe we just don't see it yet. We don't see quite how much we're trying to do in our own power. We're not tired enough yet. We're not worn out enough yet. 
Father, would you lead us to repentance? Would you show us our sin and our fault and what we're doing on our own strength and power? And for the last group in this room that you just don't even know what you believe about this yet. You just need to know that you have a church and a group of people around you right now praying, not against your flesh and blood, but praying for God to do what he does, which is save people like you. And that you're here in this room, not out of coincidence, not out of flesh and blood, because God has drawn you to himself. That he loves you. And his love for you knows no bounds that he would pursue you no matter what. So my message to you would be repent. Stop fighting. Embrace the love of the Father that he has for you. And for all of us, would this be just a morning of commitment to pray, to fight off any temptation that we might have to strike first, work hard first, do things in our own power first? Would we avoid all that at all costs? And would our first move of action constantly and forever be to hit our knees? Because we don't battle against flesh and blood. We have a real enemy but we have a powerful God that goes before us in all things. So church, I'll leave us in this time of repentance. If you just need to continue to pray, pray. If your hearts are ready for communion, it'll be open in the back. The elders will be standing there. We can pray with you. And then we can worship. We can sing. We can rejoice because we have a God that fights our battles. A God that goes before us. We have a good father. In your name we pray. Amen.